Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Fishing for Men with Mac show. Hi, everybody. Glad you could join me for this episode. We are in part two of 11 episodes that is about the 22 reasons to stop believing in God video. Last week, I dealt with the first two issues and they were quite easy to rebut, to be honest with you. Um, and in summary of last week, I just want to recap quickly what the principles were that we that we took from that uh, regarding the Christian worldview. And it's the following, that God knows that what we're going to do. God knows what we're going to do. But here's the key. He doesn't make us do it. The fact that he knows doesn't take away my free will. And we have free will. And God does know everything from the beginning to the end. Now, if God did for some reason stop us or others from doing bad things, um, then he would be violating our free will. And that means that we just become puppets on a string. And nobody wants that. Neither Christians nor atheists, no human being wants that. We all want free will. All right. So today we'll be looking at the third and fourth issue the video guy says are good reasons to stop believing in God. But before we move on to those two points, please allow me to do a quick advertisement. Um, I've just published a book and it will be coming available on Amazon on the 1st of August. It will be available in paperback. So if you like holding a book in your hand, um, if you don't like holding a book in your hand, you can also get it on Kindle and you can also get the audio. If you don't like reading, you can listen to it. So I haven't recorded it yet, but hopefully it will be recorded um, by the 1st of August. And the title is this. Churchianity, a Christianity created by us. I'm going to give you a, a brief book description of it. Uh, here it is. Uh, do we really need the church as we know it to effectively make disciples of all nations? Is all the, the money, the flashiness, in other words, the big uh, buildings, the great worship services with the smoke machines, do we need that? And the institutional prowess, um, you know, the, the massive organizations, do we need all of the big organizations and the flashiness and all the money to just make disciples or do all of these things maybe perhaps hinder the mission. Jesus started a church that conquered the world by foot and no money. All right, let that sink in. We started a church that cannot conquer the world, even with planes, the internet, and excessive wealth. In the book, I speak about the 1040 gap also. The 1040 gap is, is that area of the world's population that is unreached. So we've got an extremely wealthy Christianity with great technology today, and yet we can't reach all the people in that gap. What is going on? Well, churchianity is going on. A type of Christianity that evolved over time with more of a church focus than a Christ focus. So the question then is, what type of Christianity do you hold on to? Consider some questions. Are you a church goer or a church grower? Have you baptized somebody? Have you made a disciple yet or do you just go to church? Secondly, is your church on mission or the mission? Thirdly, do you like your church or do you love the church? And do you know what the difference is between the, those things? The COVID-19 pandemic has been a good test for the institutional church. As churches were forced to close its doors, it forced people to ask the question, do we really need the church as we know it? Can our faith remain healthy without formal institutional Christianity? Ask yourself the question. The last few months when you haven't been able to go to a church service, did your spiritual life deteriorate? 
Churchianity is man-made Christianity. It is about de denominational divisiveness. I mean, there's 34,000 different churches in our world today. It's about sectarianism. Some churches believe that they're the only people going to heaven, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, etc. And legalism. It's like the legalism is, is the type of teaching that we find in some churches where you have to obey all kinds of laws to go to heaven. But churchianity is also about money. Churches have become huge organizations that cost loads of money. Does the gathering and spending habits of money in the church impress Jesus? That's a question I address in the book. Churchianity is also about cultural Christianity. Secular humanism has infiltrated the pulpits of celebrity preachers. Sermons have become TEDx talks. Worship has ceased uh, being about worship, about the worthiness of God. And is there a price to pay for these deviances from pure and simple biblical Christianity? And just like every church generation needs to calibrate itself with New Testament, with a New Testament church, so do we in this generation as well. So we've got to evaluate the church that I'm going to. Is, does this church look like the church of the Bible? Uh, churchianity, a Christianity created by us reveals the discrepancies between biblical Christianity and man-made Christianity and challenges individuals who believe in Jesus to follow Jesus and not just sit in church. So, if you um, feel a little bit eerie about church, this will help you make sense of it. If you don't believe in God because uh, of where your experiences with the church, this might be a good book for you to read. Um... I hope that I'll make this book available for free for a, a limited period of time, um, but I will keep you updated on that on this podcast. Or you can message me on Podbean, uh, or you can uh, send me your email address, or you can watch my Facebook uh, page, and I will keep you updated on how this book will be made available if you would be interested to read that. Now, now for today, let's talk about rebuttal three and four of the 22 issues that this guy has with Christianity or with believing in God. Here are number three and four among the reasons why it is a good idea to stop believing in God. So his number three said the following, God could not stop a murder when there were only four people on the earth. His point number four was this, if we are supposed to be God's special creatures, then the universe is full of a lot of wasted space. So let me start with the first one. And let me just point out, I think we're, we're on about six minutes now. Um, there's some exciting stuff coming up. So really hang around. These are going to be cool. And I want to share with you an, an audio clip just now of something very interesting. Okay, let's start with the first one. Um, God couldn't stop a murder when there were only four people on earth. Well, what is he talking about? Who's these four people? For in case you don't know your Bible. Well, he's talking about the first family that lived According to the Bible, he's talking about Adam and Eve, and they had two sons, and their first two sons were Cain and Abel. Now, let's backtrack just a little bit. God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where there was a tree that they were not permitted to eat of. And lots of people have asked, but why did he place that tree in there? He placed that tree there to, to, to show us a very important theological truth of our existence uh, a very important truth of our reality. The tree was placed there to show that human beings have a choice. You can eat of it or you can't eat of it. Okay? It's, it, it was created by God to create sin potential. It's about free will. And so they did eat of the fruit uh, of that tree. 
And then God walks in the garden. This is how the story goes. And he calls to them. He calls them by name. Where are you guys? And, you know, it's, it's an interesting text. It's like, does God not know where they are? Of course God knows where they are. Did God not know that they were going to eat of the tree? Of course God knew that they were going to eat of the tree. We discovered that last week. God is omniscient. He knows everything. There's nothing that he doesn't know. But man still has free will. And that brings up the question, why didn't he stop them? The moment that he saw that they were going to eat of the tree, why didn't he walk up to them and say, no, don't eat of this tree. Don't eat of this fruit. Why did he say that? Why didn't he do that? Well, because they've got free will and God already decided when he set the world into place that he was not going to violate people's free will. Because if he violated their free will, then love couldn't exist. All right. So it's exactly the same thing with Cain. If God could God have stopped Cain from killing Abel? Of course he could have. But then. Cain would no longer be acting in free will. He would just be a hypnotized puppet in God's hand. So then did God just stand by and see one person kill another? The first family on earth? Did, did God just look at that and say, Oh my goodness, Cain, you're going to kill Abel. Oh my goodness. And he's like um, challenged about that in his mind and he doesn't do anything about it. Is that what God did? Well, here's the thing. God didn't do nothing. God didn't do nothing. He did do something. He did the same thing that he does to you and I even today. Let me read the text for you. It's not like God just stood by as Cain killed Abel. The text says this. Then the Lord said to Cain, this is in Genesis 4 verse 6. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. What is God doing here? God is really challenging Cain. God is seeing what's going to happen. God has already seen what's going to happen. And God is warning him here. Look, don't do this. I know what you're thinking. I know what you want to do, but don't do it. God was trying to persuade Cain to change his will. God wasn't going to force him, but God was trying to persuade him. And then in verse 10, after he killed Abel, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Ladies and gentlemen, God doesn't take over our will when we are going to hurt others, but he tries to change our will. God warned Cain here. God pleaded with Cain here. And God does the same thing today. He pleads with us and he warns us not to eat of that tree with that fruit on. In this instance, the fruit of the tree for Cain was to murder his brother. And God is saying, don't eat of it. Don't go kill your brother. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants you. Be careful. You must master it. It's the same thing that God says to us today. You might ask the question, well, how does he do that? Well, he does it through his word, through the text that I just read now. Um, the text that does warn us that there will be consequences for the things that we do. But he also speaks through people that we meet in our lives that sort of direct us in the right direction. Our parents, our friends, th that gives us warning signals. When you hear something that makes you feel uncomfortable about something that you're going to do, you need to listen up to that. All right. And maybe it's not people, but most often it's conscience. There's a moral law that has been written in our hearts. We know what we're about to do is wrong. We know that. 
That is why everybody in this world knows that murder is wrong. The same moral laws are written on all our hearts. But just like Cain, often we don't listen. So instead of making God the villain and say, well, God, why don't you stop this death? Let's ask the question, Cain, why don't you stop yourself? Because you could. We all sometimes ignore God's call to do right and end up doing our own will. And then we blame God. So when this murder is taking place in the world, then we blame God. Why don't we blame the people who commit the murder? We might then ask, but how can God just look upon someone being murdered? How can he just look upon that? Well, I don't think that God looks upon that with a smile. And I don't think that God revels in that now, like it's a TV show that he's going to watch, that he's excited about what's taking place. We see that in the text. God was distraught by the fact that Cain killed Abel. Just because God knows something's going to happen doesn't take away the emotions that God feels when it actually does happen. That's what we see in this text for today. But if God is the, is, is, is the God that we read about in the Bible, and the Bible is true, then Abel dying is not the end, but the beginning of his eternal life in God's presence. So death isn't something that God is scared of uh, like us. For us, death is final, but not for God. He just simply sees the transition of a human being from earth to eternal life. That's all he sees. So sometimes for us, when we look at death, it's like the end of the world because it is the end of that person's world. But God, who sees both the beginning and the end, he sees this earth and he sees eternal life, sees just the person transitioning from this life to the next. The Bible does say that God is not happy at all when the unrighteous die. He, he doesn't like it. The Bible says that he wants the unrighteous to turn and live. He doesn't want them to die. But the righteous, the righteous, God doesn't have a... A problem with that? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his, of his saints. God doesn't mourn when his people die. In actual fact, the book of Job says that God longs for us to return to him because God loves people more than we do. God loves our parents that have died more than we do. Our friends that have died more than we do. The people who belong to God, God is excited when they return to him. And sometimes the righteous, God allows the righteous to die. Because he's got reasons for that. Good reasons for that. One of the reasons, for example, we find in Isaiah 51 verse 7 that says, Sometimes good people die because God wants to spare them from future evil. So we look at this murder that took place in the book of Genesis, the first family that ever lived, by the way, which is so cool. It's so cool that we see in the Bible the first, first family that ever lived made a mess. It's so cool to see that, right? Because not even if, if not even they could be perfect and get it right, then why do we think we're going to be perfect and get it right? And that, that elevates the power of the cross because we're an imperfect people. And it's not our goodness that's going to get us into heaven, but only God's goodness. So uh, death, in God's mind, sometimes saves people. But what God was most concerned about in this story is Cain's character, his sin. So let me make a summary. God couldn't stop a murder when there were only four people on earth. That was the statement. Well, he could. He could have stopped the murder. But like we said last week, then he would have to make Cain a puppet on a string and rob him of his free will. What God did, though, was to try and persuade him to change his will and rethink the situation and do what is right. And this is a lesson for the human race. Right in the beginning. And maybe that's the big reason also why God didn't specifically intervene in this case. Maybe there's a lesson here for us. A lesson about free will. Listen here guys. I will warn you. 
I will warn you about doing the right thing. But at the end of the day, your will will determine what you're going to do. You could listen to me. You could reject me. But remember, whatever decision you make, there's going to be consequences for it. It tells us just once again that we have grave responsibility in our hands to do what is right. Let's go to the second point. The second um, reason why it's a good idea to stop believing in God. Here he goes. If we're supposed to be God's special creatures, then the universe is full of a lot of wasted space. Hmm, I get that. There is a lot of wasted space when we view it from a human brain perspective. I think what he's trying to say is this. If God created everything, then why would he create a universe that is so huge that we can't even reach its end if there's nothing else in it? Okay? And we can't. We, we really, really can't. The greatest thinkers, the greatest scientists cannot fathom the universe. The greatest cameras that have been designed cannot take photos of the ends of the universe. We can't reach the end of the universe. So, um, here's a point, right? The universe must have a purpose. That's really what the question comes down to. But he assumes that a purpose that human beings can think of. If the universe has a purpose, it must be something like there must be other universes or there must be other little worlds, for example. Okay, otherwise it doesn't make sense. Well, the Bible tells us that the, the, the universe has a purpose. And here it is. Okay, it's in Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. Okay, the purpose of the universe is to declare God's glory and to show off the work of His hands. To show the human race how big He is, how, how complex He is, that we can never fathom Him, that we can never understand Him. And if you want to see something that, that really um, illustrates this well, go look at a video on YouTube. It's called Indescribable by Louis Giglio. If the purpose of the universe is to show us how small we are and how big God is, then I would say the universe is just about the right size. He created it to be immeasurable and unfathomable, to show us His glory, because He is immeasurable and unfathomable. According to the Bible, the reason why we can't reach the ends of the universe, the reason why we can't count all the stars, the reason why we can't comprehend the, the expanse of the universe is because God made it that way with the specific purpose of showing us who He is and what He's capable of. That He can name these stars one by one. That He holds this whole universe in His hand. Right? Isn't that phenomenal? That is the purpose of the universe. And it makes sense. It makes sense biblically and theologically. When we look at the reality of the universe and we look at what the Bible says and you put the two together and then you realize, okay, now it's starting to make sense. Just because the universe is so big doesn't mean that we are less special. In actual fact, it makes us more special, right? Because if all of this was created so that we could see it, then it means that God is interested in our perspective of Him. And that brings me to a section that I really debated about whether I wanted to put it in or not, and, but I want to. And, and it's the statement this guy make about, makes about us being God's special creatures. Okay. Last week the show was 13 minutes, so I thought I was going to make the show a little bit longer today, but I don't think it will be too, too long. And, you know, I think this is very interesting for me. The question is this, are we God's special creatures? Well, I believe so, yes. He made the heavens so we could see His size. He is interested in what 
we see. He's interested in our attention. We mean something to Him. If He would create a whole expanse like this, so we could see His glory, then we are important to Him. Even if we do live on a little blue speck of dust in this whole cosmos, it doesn't mean that we're not important. But apart from that idea, I want to point you towards a common, secular, humanistic idea that is making the rounds. It was birthed, birthed in postmodernism, and I can guarantee you some of you listeners, you've already adapted to some of this. You already hold this type of view of life. There's a huge and growing mindset developing that animals and humans are equal. Right? There are protesters about animal cruelty. Uh, people who say, you know, don't eat meat because it's cruel on the animals. Animals have feelings, and but they eat plants, uh, and plants don't have feelings. For example, you get lots of stuff like that uh, doing the the rounds. Now, the the idea is that this that humans are not special among the animals. Now, let me just point this out. I think we've got to take care of the animals, etc., etc. But um, what, what do you think about that? Do you think that humans and animals are just on the same level? We just um... Now, I came across this video uh, of an Indian dude who spoke at some conference. Uh, it, it was really cool to listen to, and I'm sure you will like it too. And I, I saw the people listening to this guy. They were like blown away. Wow, this is amazing. This is so powerful. But if you go dig deeper, there's some really scary stuff that's being said in there. Now, as you listen to it, try to wrestle with it a little bit. How do you feel about it? And I just want to say before I play it, uh, especially to our American listeners, um, that this guy uses the word hell twice or three times, I think. And, and, and I know in the States, using the word hell is a very derogatory uh, term. So please excuse that. That's not the way that, that I talk. Um, and for those who are a little bit confused, um, I just want to tell you literally, yes, in the States, using the word hell is a, is, is a bad word. Um, so just excuse that. Uh, enjoy this video. It's just about three minutes long. And then I'll just say a few things about it. And then we'll continue with the show. If you observe, let's say, an ant, or let's pick up something little more than an ant, like a grasshopper, it's easier to see him. If you look at him carefully, whoever created this grasshopper has paid as much attention to a grasshopper as they have paid to this one. Please pay attention and see. When the source of creation has given equal attention to ant and you, who the hell are you to think an ant is a lowly creature and you are some superhuman being? Why are you making this judgment? Creation has not made this judgment. You may think you are superior simply because you are in a blatant manner, you are walking on this planet, but that's not true. The fact of the matter is like this. See, if all the worms on this planet, right now if all of them die, all the worms. In about twelve to eighteen months, all life on this planet will cease, everything, including you and me. Suppose all the insects die today. In something like two and a half to four years' time, all life will cease. But if all the human beings die, the planet will flourish. Yes, we make good manure. If Human beings go away, right through this building trees will grow, isn't it? Yes or no? Everything will flourish. So, who the hell is telling you that you are the most significant life? 
This idea that the cosmos is human-centric is a stupid idea. In this cosmos, even this solar system is a tiny speck. Tomorrow morning if the entire solar system evaporates, nobody will notice it. That's how small it is. In that tiny speck, planet Earth is a micro-speck. In that micro-speck, Bengaluru is a super micro-speck. In that, you are a very big person with great self-esteem. This is… this is not a simple problem. People suffer this for their whole life without handling it. This is all you have to know. Never look up to anybody and never look down on anybody. This is all. Never look up to anything, never look down on anything. If you see everything just the way it is, everything has immense value. Everybody has a place and value to their life, isn't it? Every creature has value. Because we did not realize that, how many things we have destroyed in this world? Simply because we think this is valuable, this is not valuable. There is nothing here that is not valuable, everything has its value. Okay, so let me just make a few comments quickly. Yes, everything has value, but not the same value. Everything has value, but not the same value. We are more valuable than the animals. All right, I believe that definitely. Jesus himself said so on two occasions in Matthew 6:26 and Matthew 10:31. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus' own mouth. Don't worry about food. Look at the birds. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? In Genesis, we see God gives us rulership over all the plants and the animals on the earth. That gives us great responsibility, but it also places us in a higher position than the earth's creatures. Job 35.11 says God made us wiser than the animals. God created us in His image, not that of animals. Oh, oh, no, no, no. He didn't create animals in His image. Um, I mention this because there's a strong flavor of elevating animals and villainizing people who have been made in God's image. But it's a cop-out. It's, it's honestly a cop-out. Now, the question then is, what's our relationship then with life on earth? I love the idea that he brings up of the insects dying and then the earth dies out. But if humans disappear, nothing will happen. The earth will flourish. I think it is true. But it proves the point that we are not like the animals. If we were we would have been part of the food chain. We are above the food chain. We need the earth, but the earth doesn't need us. So what does that mean? Well, once again, it is about us. God created the world for us to live in and enjoy. And yes, we have to take care of it, but we must not worship it. The earth without us will flourish, but have no meaning. Heaven without us will hurt. The earth has been created for us, and we have been created for heaven. Now, let me conclude and give two rebuttals, as I said, that I will do every week. We take two statements from the atheists, why it's a good idea not to believe in God, and then we throw two questions back at the atheist community, and here's the two ideas that I would like to address in conclusion. If God doesn't exist, then murder surely isn't wrong. If God doesn't exist, then murder surely 
isn't wrong. I mean, why are atheists so upset about murder? Who says it's wrong? Right? Some might say, well, say, well it's not good for the species and for evolution, etc. Well, at, at its heart, atheism, in essence, is saying we are just animals. We're just part of the animal kingdom, right? That's what atheism says. That's what evolution says. We are not above it, right? You've just heard the video. We are not above the creation. We are not more valuable. Well, if that is the case, why be concerned about murder? You know why? Because animals kill each other. Going to the animal kingdom, they kill each other. Sometimes it's for food. Other times it's just for self-defense and protection. Sometimes it's for no reason, like snakes biting horses. A snake can't eat a horse, for example. I, you know, I'm going to go into all the um, animals of the same species kill each other sometimes. So if God doesn't exist, then murder surely isn't wrong. Okay, my second rebuttal is this. If God is supposed to stop murder... Why doesn't atheism do it? If God is the one that's supposed to be stopping the murders, then why doesn't atheism do it, if that's what atheism wants? Uh, and I don't have much time for this, but let me just briefly give an example. Charles Darwin, he's the guy who created evolution, right? He created the theory of evolution. In his book entitled The Origin of Species, you know what the subtitle of that book read? Listen to this carefully. It read the following. The preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. I'm going to repeat that again and think about it. The preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Now we can clearly see how that statement played out in the 20th century. The Nazis used that statement to kill off inferior Jews. Because the idea of evolution says that inferior races can be exterminated. So that the best races can um, continue living. That cost the death of 6 million people. That's what an atheistic worldview did in the 20th century. And we, Hitler was an evolutionist. This is just one example. We don't have time uh, for communist China to talk about the Soviet Union. Um, but in a nutshell, Darwinian thinking has directly led to the slaughter of 120 million people in the 20th century. Sure, that is quite a huge murder rate from the atheists.